Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. All right, good morning. How are we doing this morning? Some of us are good. Bryce is always awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, my name is Josh, one of the lead pastors here at the District Church, and it is a joy and honor to be able to open up God's Word with you this morning. Um, we are continuing in our Colossians series, uh, The Preeminence of Christ. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be taking a look at verses 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. And what I've entitled this morning is Paul's mission statement. So Paul, up until this point, as we've looked at the last 23 verses, has been talking about the preeminence of Christ. The preeminence of Christ over creation, uh, over salvation, over all things. As he would say in verse 15, is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. So we have seen, and Paul has been building up this supreme view of Christ. And then all of a sudden, he takes a detour. We find that in this passage, he begins to talk about his ministry and the purpose of his ministry to the Colossian church. But what I want to point out this morning is that he doesn't do this for the sake of his own glory or building himself up, but he does this to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. He does this to help the Colossian church as well as us understand the completeness of the message that we find in the gospel. He does this to combat what scholars would call the Colossian heresy that had a lot to do with special knowledge or Gnosticism, as it's called. Paul shares about himself and the purpose of his ministry to ensure and help bring credible evidence to him and him being a minister of the Lord in order to combat any type of thought that, oh, Paul is withholding from us like any other teacher in our area. So what I want to do is I want to open up this passage this morning and I want to show us the mission and vision of Paul for the Colossian church, but as well as, as the Spirit does, the mission and vision for us as a church and us as believers in Christ. We find that mission and vision in verse 29, 28 and 29, that the church would become mature in Christ, lacking nothing. So let's take a look at the word of the Lord, ask him to bless this time as we Paul writes in verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I have become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of of this mystery, which is Christ in you, hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in you, 
whom all are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see the good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask him to bless this time, and then we will take a look at what Paul has to say to us as believers. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the cross that has made a way to be reconciled back to you. Lord, thank you for the words that we just sang, the reminder of being able to be free in Christ when it comes to brothers and sisters, laying down our own wants and desires in order to humbly submit ourselves to you. Lord, and thank you for this word. Help it to mature us. Help it, help it to bring us to maturity. We know more of who you are. And we see the grace and mercy that you have. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified this morning. So Paul's mission and vision here that we find is verses 28 and 29, to bring us to maturity in Christ. Now, if you understand in today's context, businesses oftentimes have mission and vision statements, right? To, to proclaim what the purpose of their business or organization is for. So I'm going to play a little game with you guys this morning. Nobody's going to have any points. Nobody's really going to win, so just be prepared for that. But I want to see if you can guess some of these organizations by their mission and vision statement. So this first organization says, our mission is to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. Anybody have any idea? Nice, okay. One for one, all right. This next organization says, our mission is dedication to the highest quality of customer service delivered with a sense of warmth, friendliness, individual pride, and company spirit. Oh, well, that's a good guess. No, also a good guess. You can see them in the sky at oftentimes. Yep, boom. All right, there we go. This next organization says our mission is to refresh the world in mind, body, and spirit, to inspire moments of optimism and happiness through our brands and actions. Anyone? You might see in a commercial there's a polar bear. All right, there you go. Perfect. And then this last organization says, our mission is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. All right. I, okay. <laughs> All right. Welcome to 2020, Dan. We don't use that here. Um, okay. And so this last one, I'm, I'm really banking on the fact that our people in our church that come regularly listen. Okay. I'm just hoping and crossing my fingers. Can anybody recite to me the mission and vision of the district church? Maybe I can help you guys. We exist to glorify... All right, good, good. We're making progress by making disciples through gospel-centered worship, community, service, and multiplication. All right, we got one of those. Cool. Um, now, we are, we are redundant. We understand we are redundant about gospel centrality. 
We talk a lot about gospel-centered worship, gospel-centered community, gospel-centered service, and gospel-centered multiplication because we believe that none of those can happen without or apart from the gospel in making disciples. So this is our mission and vision. And we are coming alongside the, the scriptures, or the scriptures coming alongside us in helping prepare you as disciples to be mature and complete in Christ. That's why we are talking about Paul's ministry today and his mission and vision. Him we proclaim, as Christ says, warning everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in him. And so I want to take a look at Paul's mission and vision, and I want to ask the question, how is this accomplished? And through this passage, I see three things that Paul shows us in how he accomplishes this mission and vision. For those of you who are type A like myself and take notes, it is joyful suffering, faithful ministering, and spirit-filled energy. I'll say that again. How Paul accomplishes his mission here in this passage is through joyful suffering, faithful ministering, and spirit-filled energy. While this may seem like, as you read this passage, it may seem like just a mini-manual for pastors and preachers, I promise you, and I don't want you to check out because you're like, oh, he's just talking to someone who preaches. That's not the point. As 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds us, all scriptures God breathed to help us grow in our likeness of Christ. This passage is the same, and Paul's words have direct application to our Christian life, apart from up here preaching a sermon. So let's take a look at that first point, joyful suffering. Paul reminds us again in verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now this is an odd verse. It's an odd verse for two reasons, right? Because Paul is rejoicing in his suffering for the sake of the Colossian church, which is also, furthermore, he's never met these people. So he's rejoicing and suffering for people that he's not even met face to face. But he's not just rejoicing in his suffering as if he's some type of masochist. Right? We, we find throughout the New Testament, Paul is not talking about being beaten and, and being happy about that. What he's rejoicing in is what happens from suffering. The advancement of the gospel, the result of the suffering that he has in prison is the growth of the church. We see this in Philippians 1, where he says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, and he's speaking in prison, has served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in, in my imprisonment. What then, he asks, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul is rejoicing in his suffering because he sees the result that brothers and sisters in Christ are becoming bolder and bolder to proclaim the gospel in a Roman world 
that would throw them in prison, that would beat them, that would make them martyrs, they're still becoming bold to preach the gospel. It's interesting when you think about the results of your suffering. Have you ever taken the time to look back at maybe situations or sufferings or trials to see how God may have grown you through them? If you ever get a chance to do that, just take 10, 20 minutes and think about a hard time in your life and think about where God has brought you to. Can you rejoice in that? Can you rejoice in what God has accomplished? Can you be like Joseph at the end of Genesis where he says, what was meant for evil, God meant for good? How do you look at your sufferings? Alexander McLaren, an English minister in the 1800s, said this about Paul. It's easy to say fine things about patience and suffering and triumph and sorrow when we are prosperous and comfortable, but it's different when we are in the furnace This is a man with the chain on his wrist and iron entering into his soul with his life in danger and the future uncertain. He can say, in this I rejoice. And not only is he rejoicing in his suffering, but we see that he is claiming to fill up what is lacking in Christ. This is the other odd statement we find in this first verse. It's an odd thing for Paul to say, especially because of the last 23 verses, that he would be doing anything that Christ lacked. Now, I will say this this morning. This verse is one of the most debated verses in all of Scripture. And as I found studying this week, there's about six different interpretations. And so what I'm going to do is I'm not going to dive into that, right? Because that's not the point of this message, Maybe we'll preach specifically on this verse later in time, but right now I want us to just look at the point of this passage. And so what I'm going to talk about from this verse is what Paul does not mean, and then what most scholars will universally understand and agree to from this verse. So Paul is not saying that Christ's sacrifice is somehow insufficient. He does not mean that Christ's atoning work on the cross wasn't enough to cover our sins and to forgive us and reconcile us back to God. That is not what he's saying here. He doesn't mean that at all. In fact, if you are familiar with any type of Roman Catholicism or Roman Catholic teaching, this is where they get their idea of works being added to Christ's atonement. Good works, suffering from purgatory, faithful attendance and mass, the purchase of indulgence, But what Paul is getting at here is not that idea that something needs to be added in order for our salvation to be filled up. Affection, or I'm sorry, affliction here is never used in the Bible to refer to atoning and saving work. And to add to the finished work of Christ by adding works onto salvation makes a mockery of the cross. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant it. He meant when he said, it is finished on the cross, all the suffering and wrath that was due to us because of our sin has been poured out on Christ. And for those, that who, for those who are in him have now received his full righteousness. And how do we know he means this? Well, go read the first 23 verses of this chapter. Paul didn't just get amnesia when he came up to talking about who he was. He didn't just forget what he had just preached. The Apostle Paul here is not talking about the insufficiency of Christ on the cross. Now, one of the most agreed-upon understandings of what he is talking about 
I think is important for us to recognize today. Paul is talking about suffering that he is enduring for the Colossian church. And the image that he is bringing out is that the suffering endured by the body of Christ, while Christ is at the right hand of God, are not done. And therefore, all believers participate in the sufferings of those in the body of Christ. This is the principle that Paul is trying to teach to us. Some would even say that those who suffer because of Christ is proof that you are in Him. But sufferings that happen to the body happen to all of us. And I just, I want to go on a little sidetrack here. I don't have this in my notes, so let's just ask the Holy Spirit to give us some grace. I think we live in a country where individualism reigns and rules. So when it comes to the church and when it comes to understanding that when a body suffers, we suffer, we don't have a full context for that. But just think about this. When you are injured, right, you stub your toe, or for me, I just wake up with a, a, a crick in my neck because I'm old, the rest of the body suffers, And so in America, I think we need a context for understanding that when the body of Christ suffers, we too should be suffering. Or we too should be mourning those brothers and sisters in Christ who are also suffering. We should not be apathetic to this. We should not be indifferent to this. This should be something that breaks our hearts because it is our brothers and sisters in Christ and we are one body united in Him. We see this understanding in Acts 9. You all remember when Paul is on his way to persecute the church? At that point, his name was Saul. He's on his way to Damascus and Jesus cracks open the sky and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul, Paul, Saul, said, who are you, Lord? He had never seen Jesus. He wasn't around during Jesus' ministry and crucifixion, so he doesn't know who he is. But Jesus responds, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. How can Jesus say, I am whom you are persecuting to Saul at that time? Because Saul had been persecuting the body of Christ. And Jesus so identifies with his bride that when they are persecuted, so is he. The suffering that we feel as believers, Jesus feels with us because of this truth that we see in verse 27, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Brothers and sisters, we have a hope in our suffering because our union with Christ this beautiful union that we now have in Him. And because He was fully God and fully man, and He put on flesh, when we suffer, He can say to us, I understand. I'm with you. He knows what you're walking through. And He promises to supply all that you need today. The reality of union with Christ means that we don't have to believe that we have a God who is far off in our suffering, but someone who has put on flesh and understands and even dwells within us through the Holy Spirit. And these realities are things that I want us to learn, to hold deep, to cherish, 
because of two reasons. The first one, something we already hit on, is that when we as a body of Christ understand our connection or our union with Christ, when we suffer or the body suffers, we suffer with them. Secondly, and as your pastor and as people are visiting and, and, and hearing the gospel preached, it is my duty to show you and to teach you and to remind you and to prepare you for suffering. Well, that's, that's a great message for this morning, right? You will suffer. But it's true. Jesus tells us in John 15 this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember this word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I know we live in America, and I know that persecution looks a little bit different than our brothers and sisters around the world. I understand that. That's why I want to point you to the fact that we should be mourning for them in their suffering. But I also want to remind you that being a believer in Christ should bring persecution. I don't, I don't say that to, so you can go out looking for persecution, but just being faithful in Christ is going to bring it. It may look different in the days to come, but I want us to remember that this is what we're called to as we follow Christ. But I also want you to remember that this world is still full of sin and sinful people, and so sometimes suffering doesn't come through persecution, but it comes through the year 2020, <laughs> right? Through a virus, through cancer, through a miscarriage, through your friends who throw you under the bus and, and, and act like you are no longer their friend, who talk badly about you, whatever it might be, these sufferings still happen because of sin. And the only way that we can withstand these trials, these storms of persecution, of heartache and hardship is being firmly planted in the rock of ages. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of his long sermon, he says the way that you withstand the storms, the trials that are coming, is being firmly rooted on and in the Word of God. Remembering the beautiful truths that we find in this Word. And remembering our union with Christ. As Paul says in, I believe it's 2 Corinthians, this affliction is momentary. And so we can have hope because of Christ within us, because we have hope for the future to come. That this is momentary and light in comparison to what is promised to us in glory. That's the first part of Paul's mission to help us into maturity. Joyful suffering. The second part of Paul's mission to help us into maturity is through his faithful ministering of God's Word. Look at verses 25 through 28 and even... Verse 1 of chapter 2. Paul says, Of which I have become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known 
How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He goes on in chapter 2, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. This is Paul's struggle. Here, we find Paul's commission to not only the Colossian church, but to believers who have not seen him face to face, of which he's become a minister according to the stewardship from God. Paul says that this proclamation of Christ is the fulfillment of a stewardship that God has given to him to spread God's word and to give people the hope of glory and call them to faith. And so as he ministers to the church in Colossae, he also ministers to us, believers here in this time. And he calls us to go and teach and admonish with all wisdom so that we can help disciple people into mature faith. What a joyful task that is. I know that sometimes it seems like discipleship can be a wearisome task, but Paul sees it as a joyful task in which he gets to be a part of. And my hope and my prayers that our thinking about discipleship would be more like Paul's, that it is joyful. It doesn't mean that there isn't going to be struggle. There doesn't mean that it's not going to be hard conversations. It doesn't mean that it is going to be a long road of discipleship. But when we look at it through the lens of joy, that we are called to minister and disciple and help people come to maturity. What a great task. Now you may be thinking again that this part is specifically for the preachers, right? That this is only for people who get up here and teach like myself or Dwayne. But this isn't true. This is for all of us who are in Christ, who are called to fulfill the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. If you're a believer in Christ, you have a message that is the only message that can save someone's soul and give them joy and life complete in Him. Now, I do want to say this because I'd be remiss if I didn't. You may not be called to be a minister like Paul, but some of you in here may be. Some of you in here, God has bestowed one of the greatest tasks and honors that you will find in this life, and that is to be a preacher of the gospel. R.C. Sproul says, God only had one son, and he made him a preacher. If God is calling you to preach, it's going to take everything in you, but to do anything else is simply foolish. And I want to warn you, for those of you who may feel that calling, it is a great and weighty task and responsibility, but it is not for the faint at heart. If you can do something else, <laughs> do it. Do it. And I don't say that lightly, but it is a weighty task to shepherd and preach to the people that Christ has bought with His own blood. But Paul goes on to give us the message that he is proclaiming to the Colossian church as well as to us. The hope of glory. 
the, the mystery that was once hidden. Paul here again is combating this idea of Gnosticism and he's calling it out when he talks about a mystery. He's trying to say that there is not some special revelation when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to faith in Christ. This mystery has now been revealed in him. In fact, the Greek term here that Paul uses for mystery actually means something that was hidden and is now revealed. It's not something that you have to continue to go search for or become a part of this elite group in order for you to know the truth. Paul is saying this is it. What once was hidden is now made plain to both Jew and Gentile alike, revealed through divine revelation of Jesus Christ. This mystery that was once hidden is now disclosed. But I want you to feel the weight and importance of what Paul is saying here, because I think that being so far removed from Paul's initial words and the fact that there was a Jewish and Gentile dynamic at that time doesn't do justice for us reading this passage. You see, Paul's claim here is a revolutionary truth to both Jews and Gentiles who would have read this in the first century. They would have known it was not a secret in the Old Testament that Gentiles would in fact be blessed, but that blessing would come from the Jews. We see this in Malachi 1.11. But the Jews would have believed that Israel would be the means for the Gentile blessing, but Gentiles would be subordinate to Jewish men and women. You see that, that, that dynamic? Yeah, these Gentiles will be blessed, but we will rule over them. That was the initial thinking. So for Paul to come in and now say this mystery is for both Jew and Gentile alike is a revolutionary claim. Because Paul is saying now Jews and Gentiles are now on the same plane spiritually and equally in the sight of God because of Christ on the cross. This would have been massive and should bring joy to us now because we are a part of that Gentile sect that now has equality in Christ because of what he has done on the cross and because he now dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. And this is the basis for our Christian living. This is our hope of eternal glory that Christ now dwells in us. And we find in Paul's ministry, again, this mission statement that he gives to mature each one of you, or everyone in Christ. Paul's driving passion, we find in this passage, as well as throughout the New Testament, was to see people saved and to bring them to maturity in their Christian life. It's not enough to just get someone saved and to not disciple them. Our job as believers is to disciple brothers and sisters in Christ to maturity. It doesn't just end at someone's salvation. This is our job as the church, to help one another, to come alongside one another, to outdo one another in honor, to show love to one another so that we can help disciple them to maturity. And a part of the church's mission, or how we do this through the church's mission, is community groups, discipleship groups, meeting one-on-one, coming and worshiping in a Sunday morning gathering. All that we do as a church, is specifically designed to help disciple people to maturity. 
whether it's the little district where kids are up there, it's not just a time where you're dropping kids off and you have a one to two hour babysitter as long as, you know, somebody's in there. It's not what it is. We've designed the little district for the kids to have rooted foundations in Christ so that as they grow, we pray the kindling of the gospel will be lit by the Holy Spirit. Our hospitality is not meant to just greet you at the door, but it is to show the joy that we have in Christ and the joy that you are here worshiping with us this morning. Our stewardship team. And when we talk about finances, it can be easy to think, oh, they're just taking care of the bills. But that's not it. Our stewardship team is meant to be a way in which we are generous with the things that God has given us and to disciple people in generosity. I could go on and on with every ministry that we have in this church is meant to help disciple people to maturity in Christ. And this is our task as believers, as this church, is to help one another grow in maturity. And we do this through Paul's example of proclaiming him. What do we proclaim when we talk about the gospel? We proclaim Christ and Christ crucified. To proclaim in the Greek means to announce or to declare to the fullest extent of that message. We don't just announce good advice, right? You're not going to hear me or Dwayne or Ransford get up here and preach some good moralistic advice and send you on your way. No, we preach good news. But it's the same thing for you guys as believers. As you go out into the world, you are proclaiming good news. You are announcing that there is good news. It's the imagery that we find in Isaiah when Isaiah writes, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That imagery is of a battle and a battle that's happening far off and there would be watchmen on those towers looking for the messenger and his feet that were coming. If his feet were slow, that meant that the battle was lost. But if his feet were fast, that meant the battle was won and he could turn and claim victory to the city. And so may our feet be quick to bring the good news of the gospel and to announce what Christ has done for the world. This is why Jesus has come to, to the earth. He's come to save sinners like you and I. N.T. Wright says that we need to constantly remind ourselves of our calling. Not to comment on current events or to alleviate human problems. As good and necessary as those activities are, our constant reminder is that we need to be announcing Christ as Lord. Him we proclaim. This is why we preach the gospel every Sunday in our gatherings. This is the importance of preaching here and preaching anywhere else in our ministries that we just talked about. Him we proclaim. So how do we do this as believers in the world? Well, again, follow Paul's pattern. We warn and we teach. There is a warning in the gospel that we need to present to people that you are separated from God because of your sin. And if you are not reconciled back to Him through the blood of Christ, you will have eternal separation. 
So we warn. We are to proclaim Christ by warning and teaching every man, as Paul says, with all wisdom. This warning means to give someone information concerning the dangers and the consequences of their actions. And so we are stressing the dangers of not knowing Christ as King. So we explain the truth and we expose sin. We tell people where they're wrong and show them what is right. We proclaim the bad news, but we also announce the good news of Christ. We call people to repentance and to believe, and we tell them that there is in fact a hell that will keep them separated from God, but we show them that there is a heaven to gain in Christ, and this is the hope of glory. We must proclaim Christ distinctively, exclusively, faithfully, confidently, and authoritatively. Otherwise, what are we doing? We have a hope to give to a dark and dying world. And if we aren't proclaiming this announcement, what are we doing? We also teach, both formally and informally. Now, I've talked a lot about the formal part, but I, I want to talk now about the informal part. You see, we're not just proclaiming with our words, although that is important, but also how we live. Teaching starts with ourselves and how we live. You see, it's possible to be a malnourished chef, right? It's possible to be a drowning lifeguard. It is important for us to be nourishing up ourselves in the Word of God in community, but also to be living a life that reflects the truth that we believe. So that's what the informal teaching looks like for us. And we do this in all wisdom. Wisdom here is what God means for us to understand and how it applies to our life. And so not only are we seeking the wisdom of God in what scriptures have to say, but we're also practically giving that to those around us. For Paul, true wisdom and spiritual understanding had its foundation in the knowledge of God's will and his word and as such always resulted in transformed lives. So it comes from God's word. It's the knowledge that we receive in his word. And then as he tells us, or Paul tells us in Romans 12, then our minds are renewed. It's the renewing of our minds that then transforms our lives. So this is what we teach. This is how we live. This is how we seek and pray for wisdom to be able to share with those around us. So the first part of Paul's mission is to help us in maturity is joyful suffering. The second part is faithful ministry that we can follow as well as apply to our lives. And this third part, we do this with spirit-filled energy. Look at verse 29. I find this so amazing. He says, for this I toil in struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Can anybody take a guess on who his energy is? I think I heard it. Thank you. Yes. It's Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ is working in us, giving us powerful energy. It's not some small works that he's able to do in us. It's not some 
kind of work that he does within us, but it's full and powerful work within us to be able to proclaim, to teach, to warn, to give people wisdom. It is through Christ's energy that we are able to show people the gospel and to help bring them to maturity. We're not doing this on our own. Charles Spurgeon was once asked, or I'm sorry, Charles Spurgeon once said, no, I was right. (laughs) Someone once said to Charles Spurgeon, it's as if you work the work of two men. And he responded, don't you forget, there are two men. You think about that for a second. It is the power of Christ who is enabling us to help bring people to maturity. Christ in us. And that Christ in us comes with power. As one pastor puts it, proclaiming Christ requires diligent effort, hard work, and steadfast faithfulness. But it is futile and foolish for us to try to do anything for Christ in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own resources. Our ministry is for Christ, and it requires His divine energy to be able to complete it. What's interesting is Paul uses two different Greek words for power. Paul says the energy of Christ is our empowerment for ministry. In fact, Paul then uses the Greek word for energy twice in this very verse. It's a noun and then it's in a verb form. So the literal rendering rendering of this verse would mean his energy powerfully energizes me. I don't know why I just thought about the Energizer Bunny, like pushing around. That could be what Christ is doing as he energizes us. But still, it is Christ who gives us power and energy and energizes us in order to bring other disciples to maturity in him. Christ is both the divine source and the eternal internal supply of our energy that we need to be faithful ministers of of him. John 15, 5 tells us this. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing. But then you flip the record over and play the other side and you'll find Philippians 4, 13, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So it's in Christ that we have divine source And it's in Christ that we have the eternal supply of power to help bring people to maturity. And I want to focus on that phrase, present them in maturity. That that word there, present, in the English translation is a bit off. It's, It's right, but it's kind of shading what it means. What Paul is saying here in the Greek is that he wants to see everyone fully devoted, complete followers in Christ. So not just mature and perfect, but completely and fully devoted to Christ. He's continuing a thought that he finds, in, or that we find in verse 21 and 22 that we talked about last week. But Paul gives an imagery here in this part of the passage. And it's this imagery that we find in Daniel. Daniel and his friends, if we remember our Old Testament correctly, Daniel and his friends refused to eat King Nebuchadnezzar's choice meat. 
because of dietary restrictions as well as devotion to the Lord. So this causes a wager. Daniel says if the vegetables prove to be better than your choice meats, then we will be able to continue to eat through our dietary restrictions as well as because of our devotion to the Lord. And at a certain point, there will be an evaluation of how this wager goes about. So after a certain period of time, Daniel comes before King Nebuchadnezzar to show how well he stood up to the other men. And what we find in the book of Daniel is at the end of this wager, the king recognized that he and his boys, those who decided not to have the king's meat, were fatter and fairer than those who ate the choice meat. Now, side note, this is not my plug for vegetarianism or vegetarians. I'm not going that route. What I'm trying to point out here is the fatter and fairer. Why is Daniel's imagery so important to us? It's because this is the imagery Paul is drawing on as he talks about the presentation of everyone mature in Christ. If we are constantly in God's Word, if we are constantly hearing and proclaiming Christ, if we are constantly in the warnings and the teachings of Scripture as well as proclaiming them with all wisdom that is designed to help us live with godly lives and godly skill in the context of our own life, then when we are presented to the King having not defiled our lives with the world's diet, we will receive commendation from, from the king. Let me say that again. We will receive commendation from the king. He will see us as fatter and fairer than those who have taken on the worldly diet. And this is our purpose in life. This is our purpose as pastors, is to help you mature through the proclamation of the gospel on the Sunday mornings and in the ministries around our church, but it is also the mission of every believer. As we disciple one another and fulfill the Great Commission, we are seeking to present everyone mature or fat and fairer in front of the King. This is our purpose that we need to take seriously. And I want to show you as we close out this morning what maturity in the body of Christ looks like when you're on a steady diet of proclamation of Christ. Look at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So here's what maturity looks like. Maturity leads to fruit. We see this in verse 2 that there is encouragement in the heart of the Colossian believers. But that extends to us as well, that we are encouraged, that we can have joy in the midst of any and every circumstance. As we mature in Christ, no matter what comes, we can have encouragement because we know the hope of glory, Christ within us. We're also knit together in love 
This idea that we are formed together is what Paul is talking about here as believers in Christ. This goes back to, again, the imagery that as believers we are one body and that we can be knit together in love, that we love one another and that we pursue one another, that we fulfill all of the 59 one another's in the New Testament in order to bring glory to God and joy into our own life and those that we are in fellowship with. Paul then says in verse 2 that we're able to reach the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ in you. That itself, that one verse just brings a whole bunch of like, okay, what, what are we holding on to? But it should also bring a bunch of joy because we have full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of Christ in us. I don't know about you, but there seems to be a lot of like, when it comes to assurance, we, we tend to be a little bit skeptical, right? I know I do because people have failed us. Organizations have failed us. Churches have failed us. And so when someone says that you can have full assurance in me, we can be skeptical. But what Paul has been building up is that we can have this full assurance in understanding the knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ in us. That as we mature in our faith, our assurance in Christ and His goodness and His promises to us continue to grow. And that our knowledge continues to increase that assurance. And in that knowledge and in that assurance, we're not deceived and we're not deluded. I think this is important for us as well because Paul doesn't talk about a heresy in the Colossian church as if it's something that's like, oh, you know what, that's completely off. When we're deceived and deluded in thought, it's usually because it's just a degree off from what the truth actually is, so it sounds a bit right. But it is through the wisdom of God that we're able to point out and call what is truly deceptive. And we're able to see those red flags and those warnings that are not what the Scriptures teach us. And so we're able to see counterfeit gods. And then finally, in maturity, we see that there is order in the Colossian church, and a firmness in their faith. So maturity leads us to be able to have good order with our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also to be firm in what we believe in the faith, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of all that the world may throw at us. And so this is the fruit that is then produced when we begin to mature in Christ. And so that is my hope, that's my prayer for us, is that we would take this passage and see that this is what our Christian lives are called to, to grow in maturity and to help others grow in maturity as well. And so I'm going to close out here in communion as we do every single week. Communion for us is that celebration of our union with Christ, but it also reflects our union with one another. The beauty of being able to hear God's word and to receive the grace of the juice that represents his blood and to partake in the bread that represents his body is a beautiful truth. But then to be able to look around 
and see other brothers and sisters in Christ also taking that same communion and knowing one day we will be in glory together worshiping the Lord is a beautiful reality. And we have this reality because of our union with Christ. So I'm going to close us in prayer and then we're going to then partake and receive the grace of communion and then we'll continue worshiping the Lord through song together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy that you've shown us in Christ. Thank you that in him we have a hope. We have a hope to look to glory. That though suffering may come, that hardships may come, this is a light and momentary affliction here on earth. Lord, help us as we mature in our faith that we have full assurance in who you are. Help us to know more of your wisdom. Lord, that we don't be deceived, that we aren't firm in our faith and firm in what we believe. And then, Lord, in our maturity, as we are maturing, Lord, may we come alongside those who are in the body of Christ and help them mature. Just as Paul gives us this example here in Colossians 1, let us do the same. Let us have a heart and a passion to do the same in helping our brothers and sisters in Christ mature in you. We thank you for that great grace and that mercy that we've received from you. Help us to go out and live in such a way that brings glory to your name. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at